Hey there, welcome to the fourth installment of the new feel, new look we've been had, where we discuss or even debate albums for your listening pleasure. I'm Keith Philly. And I'm Chad Cook. And this week we are getting weird with uh, David Bowie's Hunky Dory. Okay, so Hunky Dory, Tombstone Information, released December 1971 on RCA, produced by Ken Scott and David Bowie. Uh, I was kind of surprised it wasn't a Tony Visconti record, but we'll get into that later, I guess. Um, So I always like if we can throw out a description. If someone hadn't heard this, how would you describe the album that you chose? Uh, it's like a Beatles album on a lot of drugs and different drugs by song. <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, that, that's, I, I would endorse that description. I got in trouble in high school once for saying that the Beatles got better when they started doing drugs. Is that got to throw that out there? Is that up for debate? It doesn't seem like uh, you a know, particularly controversial position. That was uh, it, it was up for debate in the classroom of Mrs. Henriksen, who was later suspended for telling us that Newsweek was lying to us about, um, I don't even remember exactly what, something about gay rights. <laughs> we were, she was not having the liberal propaganda Newsweek was ramming down our throats. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> so more of, a, more of a twist and shout type of girl? Uh, apparently she was. No, I, I, I think even twist and shout was probably too sinful for her. Oh, yeah. But so back to Hunky Dory. Um, hell of an album. Like, I mean, so one thing that I think is interesting as we get rolling is the the backup band for this. It's the same group that would be the Spiders from Mars, um, just not calling themselves that yet. So Mick Ronson playing guitar and doing string arrangements and just kind of being the musical director. Trevor Boulder on bass. Woody Woodmansey on drums. And then yeah. I got a lot I got a lot for you here. <laughs> so just just to like your all-time backfires when you when you're forced to make a decision between being the piano player for yes or David Bowie (laughs) and you choose yes, like that's gotta, that's gotta hurt. Uh, You know, (laughs) from what I know of Rick Wakeman, I think he, I think he's at peace with his decision. Um, And to back that up here, I actually, uh, there's something I want to try something we've never done on the show before. Um, What I would like you to do if you're up for it, like you to in another tab do an image search right now for the words rick wakeman thor oh. and tell me what you see <laughs> Let's see. It's, uh, I, I, and i i feel like what you will see there will help you know wow helps at the stage <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean, like, you don't get to do shit like that if you, uh, you know, if you're just one of Bowie's side men, you don't get to paint yourself silver and make make movies where you're Thor. Yeah, I just, I, you know, so just, just as a broader album thought, like, I always considered this a, like a, you know, like I thought that, I mean, the piano work on this album is fantastic, so... Like yeah. Rick Rick Wakeman gets a gets a big assist, but I I kind of came away listening to it before this show with just kind of a low key appreciation of uh, Mick Ronson's guitar playing. Like he, oh god, yeah, it's not something that I would have called out though. I wouldn't have said, you know, you know what album Mick Ronson really shines on? Hunky Dory. But I mean, yeah, I, I had kind of the same thing. And I mean, I'm sure I'll get back to this if we start talking song by song, but like he just does so 
many different things so well uh, just across this album. Like, yeah, it's not like ass kicking, you know, he can like kick, he can kick ass in the top tier, but like this album, he just fucking rules in all these other realms. And even like, like I usually hate stringer arrangements, but he did all the string arrangements on this album too. And they're all great. And like, it's just like this fucking low key God tier musical performance from him. Yeah. I mean, I feel like he, he's sort of, he's sort of the unsung hero. I mean, the, the piano is amazing. And I think it really, it, it really makes it a unique Bowie sounding album because it's so piano forward, but yeah, every part that Mick Ronson puts together is, is kind of, they're all different and they're all awesome. Yeah. Like in, in life on Mars, like he's, there's barely any electric guitar in the song, but like what's there is perfect and like is exactly what it needs. And it's just, it's astonishing. Yeah. It's kind of, it's also kind of bold to lead off an album with like, like one of your all timers, like track one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so, I mean, let's, let's kind of edge into that then and talk, talk about, you know, talk about the song, like changes is, you know, fucking top level of the Pantheon. And like, how, how did he write that song that like, like it's just, it's just astonishing how mature and great that, that song is to be coming out of someone who's, you know, really just starting to figure his shit out. Yeah, and I mean, you're, you, we've talked a lot about like streaks of albums, right? Like, yeah. Um, and I don't know if you would find a more, like, there are a lot of bands that have strung together two really good albums, but I don't know if you'll find a lot that has strung together two really good albums that are completely different than Hunky Dory and uh, Ziggy Stardust. Yeah. I agree. And then, and I think Aladdin Sane is, you know, as good, you know, as they like, like it's this perfect three album just sequence. And, and they're I all, know, I don't know how they're all different though. It's like, it's really, it's just interesting that they're like, I don't know. It's one of this one cool yeah. thing about Bowie is that he keeps evolving. Well, and that's uh, an important thing with this record, I think, is that like, you know, like so, Space Oddity had been out, and it was a big hit, and it's it's a really cool song, but the album that it's on is just I cannot listen to that. Like, it, I don't want to say it's crap because I know there are people who like it, but I get just nothing at all out of it. The Man Who Sold the World is like you'd you'd hear that, and you know it would be like it's like St. Vincent's actor where, you know, for me, like I hear it and there are a couple of songs. I'm like, yeah, this is really good. But overall, you know, it's just like, well, there's, there's a lot of potential here. I don't know. And then, then this comes out and it's just, the cake is fully fucking baked. Um, and just like, you know, he always evolved, but like the evolutionary gap between the previous album and this one, like, I don't think there was ever a time when he shot forward that much. And, you know, a lot of that's probably Mick Ronson, honestly. Like, like I think one of the things Bowie was really smart about was always finding a guitarist to just kind of be the music director to, like, help him make the ideas reality. And, like, you know, Ronson was the first and probably best. And then after that, you know, to just go through this sequence of others. I don't know. Yeah, I feel I feel like it's one of those things that just I mean, so it's I'm trying to think of the right analogy, but like you could pair David Bowie with a lot of people, but when you pair him with Mick Ronson, it just works. Like it's just like it's so added well. in somehow. Like it's uh they yeah. just make each other better. Yeah. My understanding is that Ronson was like I think they were friends, but I think Ronson was also, you know in some ways just kind of like uh, uh, way more on the like simple country boy spectrum. Like, like not that he was dumb at all, but you know, like I think he was from like, he was from the country and he just wanted to play guitar and rock out and, you know, and like Bowie like pulls him into this just weird 
weird, you know, extremely weird world where you wouldn't expect him to fit in. But he, you know, even if he was freaked out by it, like he very clearly was at home in it. So this is this is going to be a a departure, and I have not seen this movie, but I saw a uh, I saw a preview for it. This Seth Rogen movie, The American Pickle. Have you heard about this movie? Okay, I've so, seen some marketing for it. Yeah. The premise is that like one of his ancestors like fell into a pickle vat and was like preserved, but okay. it's so he's like it's like a you know like someone from the 1850s coming to today. And one yeah. of the bits in the movie is that Seth Rogen has this like David Bowie poster, and he's like, "Is that your mom?" He's like, "No, that's David Bowie." And he's like, "Is that your dad?" Like, "No, that's also David Bowie." <laughs> <laughs> so it's like these pictures of Bowie. <laughs> I, I mean, he's a fucking chameleon. It's 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 beautiful, and I don't. Know, it's just it, it. It's one of those things that. In 2020, I guess, like it, it feels like society is kind of caught up to Bowie that, you know, in that fashion. I can't imagine how weird, you know, not not weird in a pejorative way for me, but I think for a lot of people probably in 1971, it was probably like, I, you know, people probably didn't even know how to mentally process just a lot of Bowie's, you know, existing outside of like these gender categories that they were used to, or I mean, I don't I know. Don't like, it's, I would have been able to process it when I was in junior high school, right? Well, I, I, I guess I know for a fact. Uh, one of one of the things in my notes about changes was that this was one of the first Bowie songs I was aware of because for some reason it was really big on Omaha classic rock radio. Um, and I do remember every time, you know, I have these twin memories of, I heard it in the car a lot and I would hear my father go off on these like weird, you know, homophobic slash transphobic slash I hate everything phobic. <laughs> Um, you know, he did not like David Bowie is my point, I guess. So I, I wonder where he would even have encountered David Bowie, right? Like, like other than Todd and Tyler on, was this Z92? Yeah. Is that what the station is? This is Z92, the rock of yeah. Omaha. Oh, uh, like, I mean, he, when would he have even seen a photograph of David Bowie? Like what? Yeah, I, that's a good question. Cause like, I mean, he, he clearly had, but I don't know. I don't know when or how or, you know, and it's a wild thing to think about, you know, I mean, the stretch of time I'm thinking of is 1980-ish, give or take. And, like, it's weird to think that there would have been just completely different mechanisms for how people got cult. You know, like, I don't know. I don't know if he was, like, reading rock mags he never did when i was you know when i was around but maybe when he was younger he was like reading cream or something i don't know yeah i mean what would it be rolling stone maybe yeah that's pretty subversive i don't know yeah I mean, I, that it, used to be the thing like pre-internet like that was one of the ways that you found out about music was yeah you know, 120 minutes and, uh, yeah, like spin magazine. Yeah. I, that's, I, I am, I hadn't thought about that, but like, I'm legit fascinated at the idea of like finding out where, where he discovered that he didn't like David Bowie. Well, it's like me having an, uh, me having a really well-formed opinion on like K-pop or something. Yeah. You know, like, but the, the difference being that, like, right now, you could fill in the gaps on, you know, on your K-pop opinion. I could pretty quickly and easily, but I won't. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, um, going back to changes, this uh, so weirdly, I remember we talked. I, I remember I've brought this up a bunch of times like during the uncle Tupelo episodes and during the St. Vincent episodes. Um, I remember 
remember I, I've brought up several times that I read somewhere that when David Bowie switched from playing or from writing songs on guitar to writing songs on piano, his songs, yeah, you know, the songwriting changed because just you can, you know, there's more freedom on a piano. Well, it turns out that I actually, I, I, researching for this episode, I realized I, I read that in Chris O'Leary's book, Rebel Rebel, which is really good. And he was talking about this album and about changes in particular. So I can like finally call back to this thing that I've, you know, been flogging a bunch. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a song you could not write on a guitar. I don't think I, I, I nothing about it is guitar intuitive yeah i mean the just the the imagery that he gets in some of these songs like you know like i really like the uh the line are these children that you spit on as they try to change their world are immune to your consultations like yeah it, it just is it I don't know, like the the craftsmanship of words in this in on this album is just fantastic. It is just next level. Uh, yeah, he's writing well, he's singing well. I love how in this, you know, in in this song, he is just unafraid to let big chunks of it be his voice and Wakeman's piano, and like, and it sounds great. It just you know that's all you need for those sections. I also wonder how "Turn and Face the Strange" didn't become like a like a identifier for a generation because I feel like that's that yeah. line is kind of like you know like "Turn and Face the Strange." Uh, like that's sort of. The... I think. I think that's another case of Bowie being just kind of culturally ahead of. You know, like, I think in the early 70s, yeah, I, I think more people were into turning and cracking a cold one in the high school parking lot than they were turning and facing the strange. Like, you know, but I think that's part of why Bowie ended up being, and we're going to come up, come back to this throughout the album, but like, you know, like, this idea that he puts forward that like being weird and different is something to turn and face and embrace. Like, I think that's why the punks loved him so much, even though like, you know, he was a generation before and was kind of doing a different thing. Yeah. It's just, it's kind of like, you can be strange and be terrible too. Right. Yeah. There's a, you know, there's, there's a number of examples of that. There's lots that, that I mean that actually feels like a natural born transition into OU pretty things. Yeah. Um, any anything else on changes or? No, I just uh, I do think it's kind of cool that he, like, <laughs> that's the first track on the album. Like that's yeah. Just I can, I'm gonna step out. I'm gonna drop the mic and. But, uh, you know, and then, so then it, I, I, I got excited about the transition there because like, to me, Oh, you pretty things is like, I, I fucking love that song. And it's, you know, very much about like things can be strange and kind of terrible or at least terrifying. And, you know, it's, and it's such a different vibe coming out of changes. Like, I don't know. What, what do you make of this one? Well, I mean, it's the, the, one of my favorite things about this album is it just keeps you guessing uh, because yeah. you know you have you go from changes to to this song that's that's just really. It, it, I mean, again, the words are fantastic. I mean, yeah, the Earth is a bitch. We finished our news. <laughs> <laughs> Homo sapiens have outlived their use. It's. I don't know. He just he he really, you know, I, a number of songs on this album are kind of homages to American artists, and and I think that. Uh, but I do I do feel like it just is. I I just love these first two songs. Um, yeah. Um, I have a slightly different opinion on the third song, but we'll we'll wait we'll wait for we'll that. We'll get there. 
I um so for me it was like I, I adore all your pretty things and I I think this one is sneakily another homage to a couple of American artists. Um you know, so the whole point of the song is it's like talking about this generational change and the new generation is gonna supplant the old generation. Um Homo sapiens have outlived their use, gotta make way for Homo superior. So I've been threatening you with all this talk about Magneto. I, I think this song is literally written from the point of view of Magneto, the Marvel villain. Like, I, I there's there's no doubt in my mind that Bowie had been exposed to X Men comics by 1971, and like I, you know, like I've put up some tenuous connections on things in the past, but this one is 100%. I almost guarantee that. Why Magneto? Why not Sabretooth? Because Magneto is cool and interesting and has, what do you you mean? Know, represents something cool and interesting. Sabretooth is really boring and dumb. <laughs> he's, he's like, he's undefinable. You know, like, is he an animal? Is he a man? He's Wolverine with more body hair. <laughs> but uh, no, you know, like, the last I just, I, version of Wolverine. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. This is, a, I, I'm going to hate myself for for doing this but uh excellent we've been watching we had never watched friday night lights and so we just started watching it and it's really good like it's as good as everyone says but it keeps jumping out at me that uh like the character who's the troubled fullback is is wolverine like like i don't i don't think it's the literal connection that i'm talking about with bowie and magneto like i don't think the writers were like we need to write. We need to write Wolverine into this, but like he, he is written the way Wolverine would be written in every scene, and like you can just, you can predict every storyline because it's like, you know, what what kind of love triangle would Wolverine get into with, with Scott and Jean? And oh, there there goes Riggins doing it. And the weird thing is, like Lost also had a character who was obviously Wolverine, and so like, I don't know what it was with network TV in the two thousands that they just. I don't know. The uh, I I feel like Magneto, like Wolverine exists just so like Magneto can dunk on him. Like those are always like like every time every time you come across that, you love it. Like it's just kind of like I mean, if you're Wolverine, you gotta be like, like what the hell? Like <laughs> I can kick everyone's oh the metal guy oh shit. <laughs> All right, I'm just gonna turn around right now. I'll be in the next room. I, uh, but I, you know, I mean, yeah. So tying it all back to all you pretty things, whether or not I'm right, um, I just how fucking cool is it that Bowie is able to like write this weird paranoid bang and rock song that's about, you know, the next level of human evolution abandoning their parents like whatever it's tied into like that is a that is an unusual topic for a rock song it, it definitely is it's uh if nothing else a lot of this album is unusual but awesomely unusual i feel like yeah. that's i think that's exactly right i think um one thing i think it does that i i appreciate as like Bowie the Clever Showman is the way the, uh, you know, well, so the, the title of the song is You Pretty Things. And it very clearly, he's telling the audience, like, you are homo superior. You are the new race that's going to come and supplant your parents. Um, you're the most special. And, you know, that is pretty crafty showmanship to just like, build a whole song around telling your audience they're special. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of what punk rock is all about, right? Is that, yeah. you know, like, uh, I guess not technically punk rock, but you know, like Academy fight song is like, you know, like I'm not your Academy. Like, yeah. You know, like it's, it's like weaponizing teen angst. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is, I guess, one way of looking at this song is it's like it's teen angst, like with the dial like cranked all the way over. 
I, I don't know. It's, musically, it's great. It's, uh, again, it, it, it's weird, but we're going to keep saying it. It's got fucking kick-ass piano, some of which I guess is him playing and some is Wakeman. Um, you know, great orchestration. It, it just has all these elements that should not rock and it rocks and it's a good transition into the next song yeah which does not rock eight line i mean so there's some good guitar work in the beginning but that's it like yeah yeah it sounds like ronson's like trying stuff out for a country album that he's working on on the side or something yeah and the the songs written via Mad Libs, like <laughs> yeah, I you know, part of me says you can't win them all. Part of me says, how is a song called Eight Line Poem, like like you're setting it up for failure there? It's yeah, but I mean, will all the cacti find a home, Keith? <laughs> like it's like an essay topic. <laughs> you can get into the school if you can explain will they defend your answer so i feel Uh, like that that's i mean if anyone wants to hire me to do that like i think i could ask really vague essay questions (laughs) that would like would like incite an entire generation of people to write really cryptic essays i i think you need to try to fight your way into the academy to do that it's like society needs that we need the cryptic essays. I don't know. I, I, it's not really a marketable skill, but you know, okay. it, it would mostly just be lyrics from songs that I like and, you know, things that I've misheard and, and have, have been repeating. You know, someone is being paid to write those questions now. That's why, true. Why not you? Why not me? <laughs> um, oh, want to just leave eight line poem in the dust and, yeah, I would like to. I would like to blast it into space if possible. But um. well, okay. But I guess that does kind of. I do have a wider question. I guess just hearing you say that. So like, I, 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 I know you know. Like, I love this album. I know you love this album. Um, but you know, we come across just a few songs in across a do- a song that we both think is a dog. Um, and that's kind of an interesting thing. This you know like this awareness that like there's an album there can be just absolute shitball songs on an album that you still think is great and is a classic and like i don't know to me that that fact is interesting and worth worth keeping in mind yeah i mean there's also there's also shitty albums that have one great song on it very true you know like houses of the holy <laughs> The Ocean, I assume. That, that would be the one I would pick. That's, yeah, that album is not like I spent a lot of my teen years convincing myself that I liked not, the I mean, rest they, of that album. The cover looks really cool. Like it yeah. seems like it should be a good album, but it just isn't. The albums on either side of it are really good. I, yeah, I mean. I, I don't know. I don't know who was who was doing the Led Zeppelin marketing machine, but they they talked that one up. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. So moving on, life on Mars, like yeah, another all timer. I mean, how the fuck do you write a song like this? Like, I literally, I can't. I, there are other songs that I love that, like, I don't, you know, I couldn't write, but I can like kind of understand how a person would you know get from a to b like you know like i just this song i don't know how the fuck you would ever even get started putting this thing together like and have it be this great like i mean i think you could give every you could give people the words and they wouldn't come up with something this great yeah yeah like it it just is i mean just the like the the part with the you know where it's just like the word bap right like (laughs) Like it's just a, the song is incredible. Like it is just a, it's a force of nature. There's nothing about it that's just not astonishing. So uh, one thing that 
is wild to me is apparently part of the DNA of this song is I don't think I have this exactly right. I know that there was a song, I think in French that got like people were trying to translate it to English and the, the, the translation that became a hit was um, Sinatra's my way. Yeah. I think it's Paul Anka. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, apparently like, that bleeds into life on Mars somehow. And like Bowie was aware of, you know, the, the Ur song that became my way and like him fucking around with that turned into life on Mars, which is insane. Like, like they have, you know, I like, I guess the chords are roughly the same, but I, I don't know. Just the, how 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 fucking great do the drums sound on this? Where they've got like that weird echo to them when they come in, and it, uh. it's. I mean, I I don't often say that. Like, I think songs are perfect, but I think this song might be perfect. Like, I yeah. don't know what you would do to make it better. I even like I try to avoid live versions of it because I don't know that he ever. You know, like like he he was usually really good live, but like he could he, he could never recreate this because how could you? It's just it's so so on there. I just I love. Okay, so this is a stupid thing, but um, until last week, I worked in Capella Tower in downtown Minneapolis. Um, it's the if you look at Minneapolis, it's the one that looks like it's from a Super Mario game. It's like a pipe with a crown on top it's like the, the stanley cup if you're into hockey <laughs> yeah exactly the uh the elevator chimes in that movie like or in that, in that movie in that building if you call an elevator when the elevator shows up it plays a piano chime that is the opening notes of life on mars and like I just that was always really weird to me like i don't think it was you know I don't think it was an intentional Bowie shout out. I think they were just like, we'll just do some piano. But it made every workday very melancholy. Yeah. I uh, I don't even know where, to, know where to start of where to start talking about this, uh, this, uh, this song. Cause it just, it like the tempo changes, the feeling in each of the words and yeah just the great lyrics just make it such a, I mean, it's just such an amazing song. Yeah. And, and weirdly, like, I don't think it would work without the piano. Like, right, I think the no. piano is an integral part of the, you know, it just is, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's like, as much as I want Rick Wakeman to just be this like clown who is in yes and dresses up as Thor. Like I, I fuck he, played you know this perfect piano part on this perfect song and like you can't take that away from him that's yeah i mean i i feel like yes and being in yes and being a clown are kind of <laughs> synonymous but very true very true yeah i just i i love the production on this i don't know how much of it was bowie and how much of it was what the fuck was his name scott um, yeah, Scott, but I love how it's, you know, it starts out just Wakeman's piano and Bowie's voice with one track and then the vocal track doubles and then, you know, more and more things come in and like they keep adding vocal tracks. So like, I don't, I have no idea how many they get up to, but there's a fucking chorus of Bowie's singing by the end of the song. Yeah. And it's got, it's just got such like, it's just so timeless. Like. I mean, if you read this, you could be talking about what's happening now, right? Like, yeah. Mickey Mouse has grown up a cow, right? Like, you know, like, Lennon's on sale again. You know, like, this is just like, I don't know. It just She's watching the lawman beating up the wrong yeah, guy. Right? Like, it yeah. just, it seems like a, it's just such a, it's such an amazing, like, just, you know, like, a lot of the songs are about American artists that, 
that are inspiring to Bowie, but this is like the seedier part of America, you know, the kind of like machismo culture. Yeah. I so I've always read it as a as a girl in a movie theater. And like like everything she's seeing is coming to her from the movie. Like does that That's yeah, I think that's right. I mean I think it's she's you know, like she's just experiencing whether it's you know I do think there's a piece earlier on where uh yeah, so I mean, I guess you can make the argument that it's, you know, it, it's either a movie or she's, she walks through the, her sunken dream, you know. Yeah. I don't know. It could yeah, be a dream. I, it could be a movie. I guess either way, like it doesn't that it, where where the input is coming from doesn't change like the fact that she's processing just the fucking weirdness of existence. But you look at the climate we're in now, like. You know, like, who doesn't feel like, I don't know, is there life on Mars? Can I try that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's go. Uh, so what do you think of the ending then where, it, you know, it goes like the big orchestral ending and ends with like the the timpani, the same timpani that um, they use in Alzo Spraxar up through stuff, like the 2001 music? Don't, yeah. don't. Like, what? I... I how the fuck do you get the balls to do that? I don't know. Again, like this is a rock album. <laughs> Are there three timpanies? Is that the? I don't know actually. I think they have different. I think they're tuned differently. I think there's yeah either two or three of them. I know I've seen so I I know I've seen three timpani setups, but I don't know if that's like the standard or if that's so there might that's, be more. Yeah. yeah, I think they're each tuned to a different note. I think, but yeah. Oh, I I, he does get bonus points for pronouncing Ibiza with that like kind of lispy accent. Oh, yes. That uh, we have a friend who's a high school Spanish teacher, and he maintains that that accent is really coveted. That it's like <laughs> <laughs> if you have that kind of lispy Spanish accent, that you're you're deemed very exotic. Yeah, I. I don't know. I, I, you know, I'm in the land where, or I'm in the mental space where if I can just get my, if I can say a Spanish word with an accent that does not sound like a Midwestern American going tortilla, then, (laughs) (laughs) then I, you know, sought after Spanish speaking accents are just not even on my radar. So not yet. Not yet. I got to work up to it. Yeah, uh, makes sense. Uh, um, want to take a really quick break before we yeah. jump into kooks? Okay. Well, we are back. Um, and that was like that was very morning zoo voice there um jump into kooks i like kooks let's jump into kooks let's jump into some kooks my uh, my notes just say cat stevens on acid those those are the only notes i took for the song i i think that covers it i you know so if, if if you don't know kooks is bowie's song to his son um who I, I guess Duncan Jones is his legal name. I know that when he was born, everyone was calling him Zowie Bowie, and I think Zowie is part of his name. I, that guy must have had a very like I don't know a ton about his biography, but what I do know, like interesting life probably. Being, seems to have worked out okay for him. I mean, seems, yeah. I mean, I guess I've never. I don't know that I've ever heard him say anything but i i do he's made at least uh, a couple movies that i really like i heard i heard him talk to mark Marin, and he just came across as like a shockingly well-adjusted guy for you know for being who he is and he just seemed like a cool chill dude um and you know like I, it just it's like this isn't like one of my favoriteest top flight bowie songs but it's 
really nice. Like it's just, it's charming and funny and catchy and like, it would be a nice, you know, like it, it's gotta be a cool thing to know that like your dad wrote this like kind of fun song for you. Yeah. I mean, it's better than, you know, like if, you know, you, you're like Frank Black told you that he wrote Debaser for you or Wave of Mutilation. That would be kind of fucking awesome. Probably like, thanks. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the thing with the thing with kooks that really like like it's not you know it's nobody's great song but the thing that i think is funny about it is that like boy has this rap as being you know kind of cold and cerebral a lot of the time you know like a lot of his you know his songs are like very well written and constructed and you know and there's emotion there but it's like crystallized emotion and and this song is really warm and human and like it's just I don't know. Like, I, I guess that's the thing I like the most about it is that like, it shows us this other side that he was, you know, capable of when he wasn't putting up the mask. It's kind of like, uh, like hoodoo voodoo on uh, mermaid Avenue. Yeah. Same exact. Yeah. Like it's got that kind of like, you know, just sort of, uh, kooky for lack of a better word. Yeah. Uh, sort of like, uh, feel to it where it's just you know it's just like it's just kind of a fun song like it isn't yeah. it isn't uh and i think you know when you've got you get changes and you've got life on mars i don't know that you want uh, you, know, yeah. you probably you probably want something that's a little more upbeat yeah it is interesting to me that like so you know changes has lines about like intergenerational conflict and Oh, you pretty things is about, you know, one generation, maybe killing the previous, you know, like, like it's very generational conflict. And like this song is just like, Hey, next generation. I love you. Like, yeah. It's, I don't know. I think it's different when, you know, you're siring the next generation. In the yeah. Probably, probably yeah. a little bit. Oh, yeah. So, you know, to, as far as I'm concerned, good, but minor. Quicksand. 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 I, you know, quicksand is not a fave. I gotta say. It's uh, I do. I guess I, I, I'm not gonna lie. I don't really like the song, but, but I do like the, uh, like there is a part in the song where you get a really good like Bowie desperation voice where, uh, where he says, "I ain't got the power anymore." Yeah. Like that part of it's cool um i don't know if the it just isn't i don't know it just doesn't it doesn't really fit for me my this is one where i don't have too many notes for and one of them is in a way this sounds draggy to me in the same way that like like i think ziggy stardust is a great album but i think chunks of it drag and Quicksand kind of prefigures that exact same way of dragging. And, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, uh, so you go from that to fill your heart. Wow, that's a weird song. It sounds like Wakeman's playing a lounge piano. Yeah, I was like, I thought, like, I, I don't know why I thought this, but I'm like, and I don't think this is actually what it sounds like, but my first thought was, like, it's like, if Steamboat with the music from Steamboat Willie. Yeah. Like it's just this weird, like, I don't know, like cartoony piano part. Like, yeah. yeah. It, my, my, the, like, literally my first couple notes are weird old timey showbiz feel to it. What the fuck is Wakeman doing? <laughs> like, like, okay, buddy, you can, you can record the yes album in your next <laughs> go around. Let's, so uh, I didn't, I wasn't aware of this until today when I was just getting my notes together. Apparently this is a cover um, song is originally written by Biff Rose, which is a hell of a name and Paul Williams. And, uh, you know, supposedly their version sounds basically like this one. So like, did Bowie lose a bet or like, why, <laughs> like, what's the... So there's this thing with early seventies Bowie that I don't get where like he 
was always putting covers on his albums and it was always just making like terrible fucking choices. You know, like I, I don't know why this one. And then the worst song on Ziggy Stardust is that um, it ain't easy. The, I don't, I don't remember who that's a cover of, but I know he didn't write it. And it just, it sounds like fucking Robert plants. It sounds like Robert plant in high school writing in a notebook. Like it just, not good. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, another better or uh, worse than Fate of Nations, Robert Plant. You know, at least Fate of Nations, Robert Plant was trying. Like <laughs> whoever it was that you know, the uh, the mental Robert Plant construct <laughs> that wrote "It Ain't Easy," it just like all they got to say is "I'm horny." Like that's just. Um, that's one of my. That's going to be one of my essays. Is going to be. <laughs> It's going to be Fate of Nations or Coverdale Page. Go. You see, I would love to see that. that would be... <laughs> so a long time ago in, I guess, undergrad era, um, like our friend Eric and, and our friend Grant, um, you know, all, all of the Nebraska friends that I brought to our social circle, we all used to put on these punk concerts in a barn. Um, in you know outside of omaha and we would uh you know we'd always come away with those come away from those with a little bit of money you know just like like not much but you know like a hundred bucks you know like at that age that would feel like a shit ton of money and we always had this idea that we were going to like do a bunch of them and pool up that money and establish the barn jam fund for or the barn jam scholarship fund that would give scholarships <laughs> for rocking um and what I'm saying is, I think you've described the perfect uh, yeah. application essay for the Barn Jam Scholarship Fund. Rocking. I, I, I don't know. Um, only other note I've got for Fill Your Heart that might be interesting, it's Bowie playing sax. Um, kind of cool that he can play sax. Yeah, that is cool. That's, I mean, maybe that's, I wonder if they were just looking for an opportunity for him to Hey, here's a song you can play sax on. Yeah. Boy, nothing else going on in Fill Your Heart. What if you just laid down some hot sax? That's right. Just all Uh, saxophone. uh, How's about Andy Warhol? How about that Warhol? So, I, I think one of the things that maybe is coloring my judgment is I... I've always had this like distaste for Andy Warhol yeah. um, and I don't really know why because like I just like I just assume he's kind of he was kind of an asshole I don't know I I don't have a good explanation for why I dislike him I think he was so I, I Sam um, I don't like him too much I think he was a visionary but he was also like one of the most hollow just empty unpleasant people I know of um yeah you know like my my opening note for this song is like I like it but I don't love it which is I guess how I feel about Andy Warhol himself like yeah you know like big recognition for being able to see the future but just kind of a shitty guy and like you know, his. I really, when I think about art, I like art that you appreciate with your gut, you know, that like instills an emotional reaction to you. And then like, if you have thoughts about it, that's great. But like the emotional reaction has to exist for, for art to be worthwhile. I, you know, from my point of view and like Warhol's whole thing is like, it's art that has no emotional you know, there's no gut sting to it at all. It's always just an intellectual point and there's, that's it. And so it's like this cold analytical, yeah, like it, it's clever and visionary, but it's just fucking inhuman. Um, yeah. But uh, as far as the song goes, like, Nick Ronson's got kind of a showcase here of like some pretty awesome guitar work. Like, yeah. 
That's like I the song is you know it, it's not one of the toppers, but it's pretty good. Like I like the kind of confrontational chorus and like it's very tense. You know, just the whole song. I, maybe it's like maybe it's appropriate for Andy Warhol. I don't know. Like yeah, the the entire band sounds good and yeah, it's a, it's a good it's a good not great song. Apparently Bowie played it for Warhol and Warhol did not like it at all, which I kind of love. Like, yeah, that's that's a shocker. <laughs> uh, um, on the other hand, then there's the song for Dylan. Yeah, I mean, I I actually love this song. Like I I you know, like I've spent a decent amount of time trying to think a better description of Bob Dylan's voice than sand and glue, which doesn't make any <laughs> yeah. sense, but uh, <laughs> I do think it works. Like it captures it. Like, I think that, I think that just nails that. And I, and I like that he's, you know, he uses his real first name. Um, yeah. You know, like this is kind of cool. Like that hear this Robert Zimmerman. I wrote a song for you about a strange young man called Dylan, the voice like sand and glue. Like it just is really, it's a great, it's a great four lines. It is. It's, you know, uh, more of that, like top of the lyrical game we were talking about. I, the biggest thing that hits me with this song is how, you know, earlier Ronson sounded like he was trying out licks for a country album. This one too, like, like honestly no exaggeration the guitar part that opens up and then you know a lot of the bendy stuff that he keeps going back to reminds me of a hank williams jr album that i remember my parents listening to in you know in the 70s um it just it sounds super countrified and it's probably appropriate for did hank williams jr have any songs that weren't uh what is it country boy can survive is that just on all of his albums? <laughs> I think it contractually is. He had, so he's a weird case where like his, and like I learned all of this through his osmosis because my mother was like, may have been the biggest Hank Williams Jr. fan in the country. Um, he started out like just singing his father's songs, like aping him completely. And then around the time Unky Dory was recorded, Hank Williams Jr. had like his big coming out, you know, came into his own and like recorded a couple of like kind of Waylon Jennings style, like not bad 70s outlaw country albums and then just like sank into Monday Night Football. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was that was where the slope led, but he was kind of he was a dumb shithead before he got there even. I went back. I was gonna go back and listen to the album that um, that this song reminds me of, and like I went into Spotify and just looked up Hank Williams Jr. and the first thing I saw was his, you know, then current single was um, if you're gonna something like if you're gonna take a knee, you better take a hike. And I'm just like, <laughs> He's I don't still, Hank Williams Jr. still alive? Yes, and still being a shithead. <laughs> like, I, just in that moment I'm just like I do not care how good you were in 1970 like I can't I, I can't we suspect your Spotify account has been hacked <laughs> exactly I don't want to get on some kind of list hmm. so the other thing that I think about with this song um, there's this uh, this historian Rick Perlstein who writes a lot about uh the history of American conservatism. And he has this, you know, so like he, he has a couple books about Nixon, a couple books about Reagan. Um, one of his big theories about Nixon is that like Nixon's whole political comeback in the sixties, you know, after, uh, after being out in the wilderness and the whole, like you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around. Um, you know, his theory is that Nixon politically resurrected himself by setting himself up as a, uh, just always positioning himself publicly as Johnson's debating partner. And so whenever Lyndon Johnson would say something, Nixon would like rush out a statement, you know, to like 
present the impression that the two of them were, you know, were the, the countering voices. Um, and I bring this all up because I think that's kind of what Bowie's doing here. You know, I think he's like willing himself up to the next level by, you know, like I am Bob Dylan's conversational partner. You know, and, and it works. Like he's he's justified in getting to that level. But like I think this is the point of him like reaching up onto that level. Yeah, I, I do think it's hard for at least for people of our vintage to like contemplate how big of a deal Bob Dylan was yeah. in the late sixties. Like man and early seventies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, you know, he was he was kind of like the voice of a generation, right? Like he was like at a time when that wasn't a cliche, you know, like, right. yeah. like when that actually meant something, what do you make of the sequencing with the back-to-back tribute songs? Uh, well, I mean, I don't, it, it's, it's three, right? It's, uh, isn't queen bitch after this? It is. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, maybe you just wanted to get them all in. <laughs> it's an interesting choice. Like it works, but it's very. It's just it's one of those songs that I feel like like his. I mean, it's a good homage to Bob Dylan because one of the things that Bob Dylan is like a master of is is like smithing together words that don't that shouldn't go together and like yeah. making it work. And that that's what that's what I get here. It's just this like it's a really good homage to bob dylan because it's kind of in his style yeah I, I with a much rocking back and man but <laughs> well you know eventually ronson went on after ronson and bowie had their falling out he became part of dylan's backup band is on the rolling thunder review and apparently like the other dylan backers like made fun of him for all the weird shit that bowie made him do um uh, weird. Uh, so Queen Bitch. Yeah. Queen Bitch. I feel like, you know, so like if Bowie gets lumped in as like kind of a pre-generational punk inspiration, I think this song is, like, like if you're making that case, this is one of them. Like this is close to a proto-punk song. Yeah, it's, it's his homage to the Velvet Underground, right? That's I, so I, 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 yeah, and I'm not sure how openly like is that acknowledged or because I see that everywhere and it's and and I agree it's just not has he ever like admitted that? Or is oh, that I don't, I don't know. I just but I, I mean like it's one of those things that's just been read into the record as true. I mean it, yeah, it's it's clearly he's like singing like Lou Reed, like like sing talking. There wasn't anecdote where he went to see the velvet underground and he like he didn't realize that lou reed was no longer in the velvet Underground. (laughs) (laughs) so so he like he saw the he he thought it was lou reed but it was whoever i can't remember who they got after lou reed left but (laughs) that is beautiful which is something that would totally happen to me right like Like, you know, like you're uh, you're talking to the guy who saw Quiet Riot in concert and the only member of Quiet Riot was the drummer. Because, like, <laughs> that's what Quiet Riot's all about is drumming. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I mean, there must have been. Props to that guy, though, for touring under the name Quiet Riot. Yeah, yeah, there's money on the table. You got it. Well, think about like, think about how much the Yardbirds must have confused people, like always swapping out, you know, like new star guitarist. Every... Yeah, like... So like there have to be people who like saw Jimmy Page, but thought they were seeing Eric Clapton and like are pissed, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going. Yeah. I I mean, I think if you're part of the greater Yardbirds organization, you might want to consider retaining one of those guitarists. <laughs> yeah. Yardbirds HR is like, we have a real retention problem. Here, what, can we, what can we do? We got to do something here. We got to get some benefit box. We got to get something. Here. <laughs> uh, 
coming back to Queen Bitch, like this is another one. Like you know, it's not. I, it's not one of. It's not as good as like the towering heights of this album, but it's really good. It's. Um, I really enjoy how much Bowie sounds like he's laughing at his own joke in this. Like he just has this weird like joyful sound as he's Lou Reed sing talking. I do think you could turn this song into an absolute scorcher if you uh, if you made it like a Husker Du song. Oh Jesus! I I think you're right, and I think like if if it ever becomes possible to practice with an electric band again, I will try to do that. I think it would be, I think it'd be a killer. Like it just, yeah. It it also, we know it works really well in Portuguese. Uh, (laughs) Did he do a version? Did he do this one? He does. Wow. I haven't seen you Jorge. I think his name is. Yeah. I like, I've gone through phases of listening to him and then drifting away. And it's, I, I gotta go back and reacquaint. Yeah, no, it's, it's on Spotify too. So if you okay. wanna, we'll, we'll, uh, it's life on Mars is good. His version of life on Mars is pretty good too. It's, uh, that's the one that really sticks out to me. Um, the Bule brothers. I, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, just looking at it, I thought I just assumed it was Bellway Brothers until I actually read it, um, like a week ago. Yeah, so, my my brain always sees Bellway. Um, Apparently, a bule is a type of pipe. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we could have just ended the album with Queen Bitch and yeah, shut the lights, shut the lights off. Yeah, this is not one for me. You know, I feel like part of why Bowie is Bowie is that, like, you know, you got this guy who swings at every pitch and hits a lot of them out of the park. Um, you're going to miss some of them. Yeah, well, they can't all be hits. But uh, it just isn't. I, you know, I feel like, I, I feel like I'm dragging on the, the downer songs, but, you know, like you have – I would put Queen Bitch, uh, Song for Bob Dylan, Changes, uh, Life on Mars, and Oh You Pretty Things. I mean, that's six six really good songs. Yeah, that's that, that easily enough to to give you like all time classic status. Yeah, if you had to. If you had to pick the best on Mars is probably what I would pick just because it's like, it's so, I mean, I feel like it's one of those songs where like you could listen to it a hundred times and you would find something new each time. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, Yeah. It's gotta be life on Mars. Like I I think that might, I think I'm capable of talking myself into that just being my favorite song. Like, uh, you know, with everything else on this, that's great. Like that thing is like, like, like they should have put that on the gold record that went out with the Voyager probes. Like that'd be, that would be appropriate to send out into space. Actually, that's right for your right to party. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, every A side needs a B side. (laughs) Oh yeah. So I, yeah, I guess we've, you know, run through the the songs. Yeah. Any other thoughts on the album? No, I mean, I just, I I think it's a, it's a great, maybe because there's so many hits, it's a great vinyl album because like, you know, you just like, it's fun to listen to it straight through. Yeah. Yeah. Even, so that is the thing that like, even with the songs that I don't like, I actually think you kind of, you do need that a little bit. Like, when you're listening to an album straight through, like sometimes it is good to be able to like step back from the rapture a little bit, you know, and just be like, okay, yeah, quicksand is on. Oh yeah, now we're back. You know, like that. I think that's actually a component that you need to a long listen. Maybe I don't know. I don't yeah. know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, I, I'm really glad you picked this one. Like I had a lot of fun thinking about it and. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of that, do you want to preview your uh, your selection for the next one? 
Uh, yeah, I think I'm ready. Um, <laughs> trying to decide which digital underground one you're going to pick. Oh, fuck, that could be really interesting. So this one is driven by recent events, I'll say. Um, it would have felt a little more timely had we taped last week, but you know, this is an event that we're going to be dealing with in the music world for a while. Um, next album is 5150, motherfucker. Yeah. Ben Hagar. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I, I'm just kind of taking it as a given that, uh, you know, the, the Sammy Dave dichotomy is going to be, you know, an elephant in the room that we're going to have to spend a lot of time. Yeah, I mean, one of them's going to have to learn how to play guitar for the re- <laughs> reunion show, right? I mean, I don't want to make ill of losing a virtuoso musician, but. Uh, you know, Sammy Hagar clearly could just pick up and replace Eddie Van Halen. He could... These casino shows are not going to play themselves. <laughs> Uh, I, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know where we'll go talking about that, but I think there's... yeah that. So like that was among the bigger bummers of like scrolling across Twitter. I'm just like, fuck. it's, it's like finding out that the grand Canyon collapsed or something, you know, it's just like this thing that you always thought was going to be there is not there anymore. Yeah. I mean, it, it just so not to bury the lead for the next show, but I mean, one of the things that two things that I think make Van Halen awesome is number one, they don't take themselves too seriously. Yeah. And number two, they have Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, those are two pretty fucking good things, especially next to each other. Yeah. That, that is alchemy. So um, it's, uh, yeah. That's, so, We'll have a lot to say, I think. I think it'll be good. Um, And that's it for Hunky Dory. Uh, Thanks for sitting through us and and all that. I am Keith Pilly. You can find me on Twitter at Keith Pilly. And And I'm Chad Cook. And you can direct all complaints to at Keith Pilly. (laughs) I, you know, I never get complaints about the show, really. I get... Complaints from angry Cornhusker fans. I complain to you all the time. Do I not count? <laughs> I don't know. They just they go into a filter. They're auto-deleted. <laughs> so, you can read them. <laughs> <laughs> if, uh, if you have a complaint and aren't Chad, um, I'd love to, we'd love to hear from you if there's anything you like or don't like. Uh, if you think we're, we just fucking suck. Um, if you don't think we suck, if you like the show, please tell people about it or go to iTunes or wherever else and leave a review. And uh, yeah, thanks. We will talk to you again soon as we dig into 5150.